Good morning. We have two readings again today. The first one is from Nehemiah chapter 1, uh, reading from 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that 20th year, as I was in, oh, sorry, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Second reading is from Romans chapter 12, just reading from 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Thank you for reading for us, John. Thank you for leading us in prayer, Simone. Good morning, everyone. 
It's great to be with you here in person. It's great to be with you who have joined us online. I have a question for us to consider today. What do you think is the biggest selling toy over the last 50 or so years? Oh, that was a lot of answers in one go. Do you know, there was like, it was like uh, in unison, eight o'clock said one word, and then I've had about 50 suggestions from 150 people. Oh, try it again. Oh, Lego, there you go. Is it, this corner has it. It is indeed Lego. But my second question is, why do you think it is that Lego is so popular? What is it about Lego? At all ages? Yeah, a variety, that's right. Different shapes, different sizes, different colors. It's just fun to fiddle with, right? And uh, they all fit together. Well, if you follow the instructions, right? Actually, <laughs> I think there's two schools of thought for Lego. There's those who love the instructions and follow them diligently. Uh, those are the engineers amongst us. And then there's lo those who love the creative possibilities, right? Um, the arty folk amongst us. Hey, um, there's a little quote on screen. I want you to just kind of put this in the back of your mind. Uh, this is a quote from Batman in the Batman Lego movie. Everything is better when we stick together. Let's see, shall we? The big idea for today is Christ was committed. How will we commit the talents he's given us to him? Talents is the theme. Committed as Christ, how will we commit his talents in his service? Should we pray? I've got to pray a prayer actually from um, King Solomon when he uh, built the first temple. Let's pray together. Father God, through the words of Solomon, your spirit spoke a prayer that we can pray. Um, the words from you were, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their, heal their land. Father, we want to pray with Solomon that you would give us hearts that align to your heart, that you would give us, by the power of your Spirit, increasing humility and a commitment to pray and seek your face and to turn from our wicked ways, that you might hear from heaven and forgive our sins and heal our land. We thank you, Father, that we have the fullness of forgiveness through your Son, Jesus, who paid it all. We pray that you would enable us to see ways in which, by your grace, we may be agents of your grace as we put the talents that you've entrusted to us to the best possible use in the light of the commitment of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Three points today. I'm going to kick us off with Sukkot, a rejoicing remnant. Sukkot uh, is the festival, the feast of tabernacles. Sukkot basically means tabernacles or tents, and it is a time of rejoicing. If you have Jewish friends or neighbors or family, you would know that last week they set up a sukkah in the backyard. What am I talking about? It's like a tent. We would have seen quite a few of them over in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and up north in St. Ives, because faithful Jews have been living in their sukkot for the last week, rejoicing. It is a time in which they remember 
the God who delivered their forebears, their ancestors, from Egypt. It is a time to remember God's faithfulness in drawing His people out of slavery and into a season of exodus and living in the wilderness in tents. And so, what is it for us to look at Sukkot today? Well, is for us an opportunity to rejoice in repentance. In Leviticus chapter 23, we see that God says to them, celebrate Sukkot to the Lord for seven days. Live in temporary shelters for seven days so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. During October, there have been a number of Jewish festivals. We looked at Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And then the 10 intervening days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was a time of repentance, where Jewish people come before the Lord their God and recognize their sins and repent of them and seek God's forgiveness through redemption, which is commemorated on the Day of Atonement. It is now the time for Sukkot. And the root word of Sukkot for tabernacle is the word that means security. God offers security. And these themes of repentance and redemption are bound together to bring rejoicing. Rejoicing in redemption. In fact, in Deuteronomy 16, we read that those who celebrate the festival of Sukkot are to be joyful. You, your children, your servants, the Levites, and the foreigners, and the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest, and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. I don't think we remember harvest festivals like we used to. Do you remember the old days when we used to give thanks to God in our community for His provision of a good yield at the harvest? Everything's on shelves today. There's international export and import arrangements. It's a very different dynamic. But I think there is something good and right in the festivals that lead us to have both heavenly celebration and a recognition of workaday earthly goodness. In fact, a funny thing about work and worship is that they're the same word in Hebrew. Same basic word informs both work and worship. I mean, we remember back, don't we, just two weeks ago, thinking about Genesis 3 and the fall, and how for Adam and his subsequent uh, descendants, toil would be hard. But actually, work can be redeemed through worship. Service is the word. And we get a taste of talents given and how we can use those for God's glory as we spend this time this morning looking at the words of Nehemiah and the words of Paul written to the Romans. But I want to calibrate us by just thinking about how good it is to be rejoicing in serving God. For you and I know God's great redemption in the person of His Son, Jesus Messiah. This is how we calibrate work and worship is knowing that God has loved us in sending the person of His Son, Jesus, who in very nature was God and did not hold on to His glory on a throne to which He was entitled, but came to serve people who did not deserve Him. 
And so as we think about work and worship and putting the talents God has given us to good use, I wonder whether you have in your budgeting each year worshipful accounting. Or perhaps for the parents and even the grandparents amongst us, the opportunity to worship as we're changing the nappies of our little ones. It's probably not the best job of all, right, being a parent or a grandparent. But can we do these things in a way that worship and honour God? Can, can we think about how service to the Lord can be found in any and all vocations because He's given us the gifts to do the things that we do? And how we might, as a community of His grace, serve one another, as we've looked in recent weeks at treasures and testimonies, with our talents, and then in weeks to come, it, with our time and the totality of all that He's given us, to serve with commitment like Jesus Messiah, the Son of God, who has served us. That's the foundation and the end of my first point. I'm going to take us now into the book of Nehemiah, and build upon that foundation. Now, many of you have been reading Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll remember, uh, we have them in our Bibles as two books, but originally they were one. And we just looked at chapter one of Nehemiah. We were introduced to this character, Nehemiah, in the 20th year of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And he had, certainly as an exile, a very responsible role in that kingdom. He was cupbearer to the king. Now, that wasn't just the guy who brought the king's drinks. That was the guy who tested them for poison. That was the guy who was one of the closest people to King Artaxerxes as his aide and protector. It was a very privileged position. So here you have a Jewish exile living in captivity under the oppression of a nation that had occupied his homeland, longing for home, but in good relationship with a pagan king whom we see in this letter actually honors and trusts the Jewish God. In fact, he comes from a line, if you remember, with Darius and Cyrus, a number of kings who trusted God. And Nehemiah, in the story so far of the characters we're looking at, is the project manager. He is the guy who is going to deal with a crumbling construction back in Jerusalem. Now, in chapters 1 to 2 of Nehemiah, we see that he hears about the first two waves of returned exiles who've been already deployed back in Jerusalem. And the city walls, he hears, are in ruins. I, Nehemiah, questioned them about the Jewish remnant. And his reporters came back and said, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in a great deal of trouble and disgrace. For the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so what's Nehemiah's response to this news? Well, the first thing he does is he gets on his knees and he talks to God. And he intercedes on behalf of the people of God, seeking forgiveness from God for the failure and error of their ways. Here's a leader who is a powerful man in a foreign nation but rightly surrendering himself to God himself to seek forgiveness. But then also he follows it up with action. And in fact, he goes to King Artaxerxes and he asks for permission to return to help rebuild the wall. And what we see in chapters 1 and 2 is that King Artaxerxes is not just supportive 
of his cupbearer, his aide, but he actually offers to send resources and a security detail to go with him and the next wave of exiles to return there. And so it is that Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. He returns to project manage an ambitious rebuild of the walls. And yet he ends up going with not just trowels, but also swords. For when Nehemiah arrives, he finds that he's facing opposition from the local residents. It appears that some of these are members of the former wave of exiles of the Jewish people, but some of these are also local nations. He informs the people around Jerusalem when some of them want to come and help that they will have no part in this project, and they get a little bit upset about this to the extent that his builders then need to be flanked by armed men as they rebuild. But in spite of this opposition, in chapters 3 and 4, we see how God organizes things through Nehemiah, his project manager, to ensure that the job gets done. And actually, if we want a working example of God's Lego pieces, his talents operating well together, chapter 3 is just this amazing list of skills that are provided because you've got the guys who lay the foundations and you've got the guys who put in the bricks and you've got the guys who do the grouting and you've got the guys who do all the bells and whistles on the top and you've got the guys who are the timber people who put the gates together and you've even got the detail down to the little guys who put the pins in the bits that let the gates swing. It's an incredible team that God puts together. But what drives it for Nehemiah as project manager is he says, the God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah attends to all the mechanics and the details to the extent of making sure that some of the guys are armed with the trousers and some of the guys are armed with the swords, but he trusts in God to make things happen. And as he continues to experience in chapters 5 and 6 resistance, both from within and without, some of it from the earlier exiles, some of it from the nations, and then by this time, some of it even from his own crew, Nehemiah has to deal with all manner of social problems. He begins to see that some of the Jews are exploiting other members of their extended family. He has to deal with some of these internal squabbles where people are exploiting one another. And so eventually he intervenes and he challenges God's people to get their act together, to start supporting the cause that God has in mind to reestablish his people there. And eventually they say, look, all the stuff that we've taken from our brothers, we will give back and we will not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say, Remember me with favor, says Nehemiah, my God, for all I have done for these people. They were all trying to frighten us. There was even a, a talk of a revolution. But their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. I pray, Lord God, you strengthen my hands. Nehemiah kept a steadfast faith in God to achieve the purposes that he had in mind, to the extent that by the time we get to chapter 7, we see that this legacy has indeed been completed. The walls are rebuilt, and Nehemiah is the one who remained a faithful, prayerful, God-blessed project manager, despite the fact that the odds were against him. God's will was done. And at that point, Nehemiah rejoiced. 
And at that point, Nehemiah got together a whole crew of nobles and officials and common people to be registered so that once the wall was built and the doors set in place and the people who were going to come in came in, they were all accounted for, for the glory of God. At this stage, you've got to remember there's no houses inside. <laughs> there's no real building structures. It's just the wall. What are the people going to be living in? Tents. Now look, the story goes on and we're going to look in the next couple of weeks at how things develop. We're going to also see ways in which some of what was achieved doesn't seem to fulfill the promise of God that was provided through Haggai and Zechariah the prophet because what was meant to happen with this temple is it would be a place for all nations. I mean, here we have Nehemiah and he's holding people away and keeping them out. And we're like, how does that fulfill the promises of God through his prophets to ensure that everybody would be able to come into the presence of God? Well, of course, we know the answer, don't we? Because the temple's not a building. The temple is the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the temple today, the place where God's presence is known and felt, is in the body of His people, indwelt by His Spirit. And that's the context that informs our third and final piece in the jigsaw, which is to look together at Romans chapter 12, leaving a centenary legacy. Brothers and sisters, the talents that God has given us as his Lego pieces, the variety and the rich color and the difference that exists with us is all in the context of being one body, the head of whom is Christ. But just before I get to chapter 12, of course, you're going to say to me, Robin, don't go talking about something without giving us context. Let me do that. Because already Paul's written to Rome another 11 chapters, right? Let me tell you about chapters 1 to 11. Paul basically says, Gentile Christians in Rome, you need to realize that although you have become strong in faith in Jesus Messiah, God has not turned his back on the Jews as a lost cause. In fact, the whole of the good news, the gospel of Messiah Jesus, is native to the Jews. If I might go so far, Paul's basically saying to the Gentile Christians in Rome, you guys are Johnny come lately. But of course, Paul writes, you're certainly part of God's grand plan for salvation because Jesus does not exclude people. Jesus is for everyone. Gentiles, you have the strength to live by faith so that, so that we can fulfill the intention of the law and live in a way that the Jew has always wanted to live. Remember the privilege you have, but also know that Israel's elect will not be separated from their Messiah forever. And so as we go into chapter 12, I want us to remember, brothers and sisters at Fig Tree Anglican Church, that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Do not neglect prayer for those who have had the promises before most of us, as mostly Gentiles, receive them. Let us give thanks and let us pray that God would continue to have mercy upon the Jews who are awaiting their Messiah who has come in the person of Yeshua. And what great news it is to hear that every day, more and more Jewish believers are added to the family of God. So what does it mean then to be living sacrifices? Well, in context, the Gentile Christians in Rome must change their whole attitude for others and certainly not write off Jews who don't know Messiah yet. 
But for us today as a local church, this also speaks to us about using our talents and freedom to serve one another and especially the weaker people of God. Because God's Word shapes our beliefs and behaviors, and God's Word reminds us that our posture to one another needs to be a posture of humility that reflects our Lord and Savior Jesus. And so Paul kicks off by saying this, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The first thing, the big idea, if you like, for this whole chapter is Paul says, offer yourselves to one another as living sacrifices. And then he goes on to say, and these are kind of the two anchor points for the whole chapter, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. All those ideas that proliferate through our media and through uh, the, the worldly way of viewing things, do not be conformed to that, but rather, he says, be transformed by the word of God at work in our minds, our beliefs, and playing out through our lives and our behaviors, because this is how we know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so, brothers and sisters, it's great that we're gathered here today to sit under the Word of God, to be shaped by the Word of God, that it might be expressed through our lives and how we use the talents He's given us to serve one another as living sacrifices. Next, he goes on to say that we are one body, but many members. He says in verse 3, By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Likewise, don't think of yourselves in a silly way to diminish yourselves. But rather, he says, think of yourselves with sober judgment, according to the faith that God's given you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these bodies don't all have the same function. So in Christ, though many, we do form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In other words, Christ as our head says to the rest of the body parts, you all have value. You remember recently we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul was talking about building the body of Christ, and he said there is one spirit who enables each and every one of us to call Jesus Lord, but we're all different. None of us has all the gifts that God gives us, but all of us has at least one. And he says every part has value. None of us is an appendix. So let us value the talents God has given us because they all fit together. Because they're God's grace gifts to us. Verses 6 to 8, as John read for us, we all have different gifts according to the grace given us. And so if your gift is prophecy, use it for the good of the body. If your gift is teaching, then use it for the good of the body. If your gift is encouragement, then use it for the good of the body. If your gift is giving, then use it for the good of the body. If your gift is to show mercy, then do so for the good of the body. So first things, first of course, we've got to know our gifts. Now most of us here are probably at the stage of life where we've worked that out, right? At the very least, you have a vocation, you do something which you're good at, you've been paid to do it, have you thought about how you can apply that to the good of the body? A number of us very visibly have gifts and talents that we use for the good of the body. But maybe you are somebody who still hasn't got that worked out. 
And what I didn't say in our last series, but I want to encourage you to do, is come and have a chat with the ministry team and give something a shot. Just give it a go and see how you go. You might find the Lord's given you gifts that you never knew you had. The other thing I want to challenge us with is to consider how you're going with applying those talents, those grace gifts of God, for people that you don't feel inclined to share them with. I mean, I know that I'm very happy to serve people that I like. There's just something in me that inclines me to go, I want to serve you because I like you. But what about somebody that you don't find yourself so naturally inclined to want to serve? If I dare say somebody that you don't like that much, how would you go taking your talents, your gifts, and using them to serve that person in our church family? Has that ever crossed your mind before? Well, brothers and sisters, the reason that it is a good thing for us to be prepared to serve one another with impartiality is because whilst we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And such is the nature of love. For using our talents in the body of Christ, Paul goes on in verse 9 to 11 to say that the overriding motivation is that of love. Now, there's a whole bucket of different values and postures that he goes on to describe in the next four verses. But the one he begins with is love. And he said, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, but be devoted to one another in love. You see, if the gospel is powerful enough to bring together Jew and Gentile, if the gospel is powerful enough to take you and I from death in our transgressions to eternal life in Christ, then surely the power of the gospel must be enough for us to take our God-given talents and gifts and use them for others in a way that is sacrificial and servant-hearted, in a way that is costly because an attitude of service was the posture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I want us to think about what it means to be leaving a Lego legacy. Because whilst you and I might be Lego pieces, I have to say Batman's wrong. <laughs> Batman says, let's stick together, let's do it ourselves. And I want to say that if you put a bundle of Lego down on the table, nothing's going to come out of it because what's required for Lego is a master builder. And the master builder is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the project manager. He's the one at work in our life together. And you see, you and I are his Lego pieces. You and I have different shapes and different gifts and different talents. And the whole reason that he loves to pick us up and put us together is because it brings him joy. And when he takes us and puts us in the right place, then it brings us joy to surrender to his design. And sometimes, as you know, I don't know whether you've ever watched your kids or maybe remember the days that you used to put things together, but it was never easy, was it? You, you had to kind of manipulate the pieces a little bit, and particularly with one of the bigger constructions, you had to spend a bit of time easing it in and clunking it together, sometimes even substitute pieces to make sure it all comes but the Lord Jesus says, you're my precious Lego pieces. You are my body parts. I'm the one who's going to build you. And I'm the one who will use your talents for my glory. I really want to encourage us um, with the studies that Shane's prepared for us for committed as Christ, considering his talents to look at those studies in our groups together because there's a lot of helpful stuff on how that will play out in our family life together. 
And I also want us to think about what it means to be committed as Christ. Because you remember, we keep every week looking at this wonderful Aussie breakfast, this English breakfast, and there you have again the chicken and the pig. And the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. And this is how I want us to consider how we will use the talents he's given us this week. But as we think about talents, and we've thought previously about testimony, I'm also going to backtrack a little bit for us to consider uh, what it means with our treasures, because the big picture for our commitment month is to move together in our giving. Our regular church giving uh, helps equip one another for ministry. And you probably see this on screen every week, and it's our bank account details. But like you at the moment, we are considering under God what our pledge is going to be for next year. You would have received your letter by now, and together we are looking to put our house back in order. Uh, back in 2019, before COVID, our giving levels and our ministry team was at about the right spot. But now we are in a place where we're looking to recruit from next year a next generation minister as we prayed, and that will require us to lift our giving together. The wardens and the parish council and the ministry team are behind this. It will get us to a place where we can then platform for future ministry. And my hope and prayer is that each of us will spend time with God and then the cards that will be distributed next week will give us a chance to indicate our pledge for 2023. Uh, then on the 30th, our Commitment Sunday, we'll bring them back and share those pledges. We're going to go ahead with appointing a next-gen minister, but that is a bit of a step of faith because we do need to lift our giving together to make that possible and sustainable. Uh, there's wisdom in the warden's mind in terms of our future spend. We do have savings, but we don't want to eat into those over the next few years. We would rather build upon that foundation. And so I'm going to encourage you to spend good time reflecting, praying, and pledging over the next two weeks. But this also, of course, is in the context of our Golden Jubilee that Shane spoke to earlier, which is coming up on Monday, the 31st of October. I'd love to encourage everybody to come because this will be such a great night of celebration and thanksgiving. We shall look back to the legacy over the last 50 years that many of us in this room and some of our forebears have given to ensure that we are where we are at today. And under God, we shall look forward to a future in which we can prepare our hearts and minds in terms of our testimony and our treasures and our talents and our time to prepare for the centenary in 50 years when the next generation will look back to us and give thanks for the legacy that we have left. At 8 o'clock, I had some older members where I was saying, 50 years has just gone in a breath, isn't it? And they all smiled and nodded. Most of us aren't saying that in this congregation but we will in a few years' time. Brothers and sisters, I also know that for some of us, there will be a need for confession. I've had to make confession to God myself in my posture in a number of these areas over the last few weeks because I haven't responded to the amount of grace that God has shown me in the Lord Jesus. Maybe you'll join me as we spend some time in confession together and then be reminded of the wonder of the atonement of Christ on our behalf. Let's take a moment together just to spend some time with God, asking him to search our hearts. Then we'll confess 
we'll, um, we'll read the response of atonement and then I'll close in prayer. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love and serve you as we should. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation. Amen. God is slow to anger and full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and turn to his son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is no condemnation. Amen. What a relief. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give in faith, help us to give in faith from the talents you've entrusted to us, your children. We give back to you rejoicing as the blessing of a privilege to share the gospel partnership with you, our God of grace and the Father of our Lord Jesus. And as we journey together through this commitment series, we pray that you'd continue to move our hearts and empower us by your Spirit, that we might be found faithful and adventurous and compassionate disciples who delight in making disciples, delight in carrying our cross, delight in being sacrificial and servant-hearted, and in following our Saviour and King Jesus. Help us, we pray, to increasingly grow to be as committed as Christ was to us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.